Welcome to The Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Mariam. The Scientist Podcast is the research community like you've never heard it before. Join us, The Scientist Podcast, along with a host of special guests, as we explore the realities of research life in the most honest and informative way possible. We'll be delving deeper into the industry's latest research papers and most pressing questions and sharing the unique perspectives of some of the community's leading figures. This is a podcast by researchers for researchers every Wednesday. Today we interview Alexander Tom, a scientist ambassador and current PhD student at the University of Glasgow. We'll delve deeper into his research and find out exactly what life is like as a researcher. And I really liked the kind of the concept and the idea of, of what a scientist was and thought it would be a good way to kind of get involved with something like that. I thought it would um, be good as an opportunity to meet other kind of early career researchers, young scientists, and an opportunity to kind of share my work and, and what I do, but also to, to try and represent them. We hope you enjoy listening. Thank you. Okay, so hello, how are you? Can you begin by introducing yourself? Hi, yes, my name is Ali. I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Glasgow in the chemistry department. And I uh, study metal organic frameworks, which are porous materials that are used in gas capture, biodrug delivery, um, and catalysis and things like that. Okay, so how have you gotten to the position you're at regarding your PhD work and your work with scientists? Um, in terms of my PhD, I, I did my undergraduate degree at, at Glasgow as well. Um, I worked on metal organic frameworks for, for drug delivery um, as part of my bachelor's project. And then I moved in the same group to do my PhD with the same supervisor. Um, and I, I moved into a different kind of subclass of the materials um, and focus now more on the, the design and the synthesis of, of novel materials. Um, so yeah, that's how that's how I got there. In terms of scientists um, and becoming an ambassador, I it pinged up on maybe Twitter, and I really liked the kind of the concept and the idea of of what a scientist was, and um, thought it would be a good way to kind of get involved with something like that. I thought it would um, be good as an opportunity to meet other kind of early career researchers, young scientists. Um, and an opportunity to kind of share my work and, and what I do, but also to, to try and represent them. Um, I've done, I kind of haven't maybe gone down the SciCom route so much um, as I maybe would have liked to in the past, but I, I've found myself doing a lot of um, kind of society-based stuff. So I was the, the chemistry society president at, at Glasgow for a year and I really enjoyed that. And I thought this would be a good kind of transition or alternative to that because I enjoyed doing it and only do it for a year so I thought well why don't we try and do something a bit different and this mm-hmm. kind of came up as an opportunity and I thought why not give it a go. That's brilliant so um, can you explain more about your position as an ambassador what is it that you do and um, things like that? Yeah um, I mean scientists are still very much in its early days which mm. is exciting Um we've been asked to do a number of of different things as an ambassador for the the company and the, the website Originally, it's been a lot of kind of trying to get other people involved on the the platform. I think when I joined, there was less than 50 members, probably probably less than that. Um, And as far as I'm aware, there's now over a thousand members on the platform, I think. Yeah, about 1,200. 1,200. And so we were asked originally to do a lot of Twitter 
kind of sharing and, and answering the polls and trying to really put it out there. And um, also emailing around our departments and other people we know we think might be interested. So I've done that as well. It's been difficult, obviously, in lockdown. We haven't had the chance to go and mm-hmm. speak to our friends about it or, or um, you know, go to conferences where you maybe would have tried to, to go yourselves as well to, to put yourselves forward. But um, it's really been a lot of just sharing the platform and its concept and its ethos and things like that across all our social media platforms. Okay, that's brilliant. Um, can you explain more about your research? What is it that you do? Um, so, I mean, I, as I said earlier, I work on things called metal organic frameworks. They're a class of materials. Um, they're porous materials, so they've got porosity as an intrinsic property of them, or we at least try to. Um, when we make them, it's not always successful. And the way we kind of try and explain it is just they're kind of like molecular sponges. And so the, the, the pores throughout them are structured and they're ordered. And the idea is that we can then store things in these pores. That's the kind of aim. Um, and in the design process, we try and design the inside of the pore and sometimes the outside of the, the surface if we're looking at powder samples to use them for targeted applications. So if we want to do um, catalysis in them, for example, um, we can use specific metals as part of their component part that we know catalyze certain reactions. And the fact that they've got pores gives us a nice very large surface area to do the, the reactions in, and we, we aim to study the, those interactions sometimes if we want to do drug delivery for example targeted drug delivery and um, we, we try again and inside the pores find a way that we can perhaps hold the drugs in position and um, all their carriage to their target site and um, there's a lot of academic research at various universities at the moment working on targeted cancer delivery so if we can make them in the, the particles into the small powders, we can coat the outside of them with um, targeting agents, for example. And that way we can take drugs that are perhaps quite toxic. So chemotherapy drugs, as we know, are not particularly pleasant. They've got lots of nasty side effects. Yeah. Um, and we aim to ha- perhaps reduce that by putting them in these carriers, these nano delivery um, systems, coat the outside in things that we know cancer cells like, so like folic acid or, or such. And that way we can protect the body from the harmful side effects of the drugs and the cancer cells will pick them up because they see folic acid. They'll take in the particles um, and they then break down, ideally into non-hazardous byproducts and they release the drug into the cancer cell, leaving the healthy cells for the most part free. What I work primarily on is designing new materials and taking new constituent parts. So we've got a metal atom, which will maybe sometimes form clusters or chains or um, other kind of building blocks and then those building blocks are linked together by organic molecules um, and so my job is really to kind of search some chemical space um, and look at those kind of different component parts. I work a lot with a metal called scandium, perhaps one of the, the lesser known metals in the periodic table. It's the first transition metal for the chemists wow. um, out there and um, so I use that and there's when we try and look at what new structures are formed um, primarily with different ligands and if we can control between different structures with the same ligands as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do a lot of kind of trial and error chemistry perhaps yeah. is the best way to put it with hopefully the intention one day of perhaps making it less trial and error and more educated guesswork. Um, moving it forward is the aim. That's really interesting what you say about trial and error. So do you think that's what, is it part and parcel of science that there's a lot of trial and error? It can be. I think certainly at the beginning of 
things. There's not been a lot of research into Scandium metal organic frameworks. There is some literature out there, but there's maybe only, I think, I've, I've written a review that we're hoping to be publishing in the not too distant future. And there's about 40 um, different Scandium metal organic frameworks out there, 40 or 50, but that's in a, a database of well over a million structures. Yeah. And if you were to take metal organic frameworks, there's 70 plus, 80 plus thousand metal organic frameworks um, in there as well. And there's only 40 of Scandiums. So we, we have an idea of what is out there, but there needs to be a lot more work done. And in terms of trial and error, it, it can be very part and parcel in the first instance. But what we want to work towards is being able to understand why we get the results we get rather than just trying to chuck things into pots and, and seeing what happens. And we want to work kind of primarily towards being able to say where these conditions give this, we want this, we want to make it reproducible and perhaps being one of the key elements because if it's not reproducible, we can't really validate it, obviously. Cool. Um, so is your work about trying to find cures for cancers and stuff like that? Because I'm really interested about that. That sounds really inspiring, actually. Um, personally, no. I've done a little bit of work on making these materials for drug delivery applications. I worked on one material. I didn't design the material. The material is a well-known one that I was working on. I worked on trying to do some surface chemistry, on um, seeing if we can do some organic chemistry on the surface of this material. Um, but I don't particularly work on that. My interest perhaps more lies towards the green energy side of things. These materials that I work on have done a lot of, or there's been a lot of research on um, carbon dioxide capture, um, as we know, it's a greenhouse gas. And in the future, perhaps along the, down the future, I'd like to see them look at um, hydrogen storage yeah. for, for fuel cells. Um, obviously, that's I think, in my limited knowledge of this, hydrogen is probably quite a good fuel source. It's relatively easy to produce. You can get it straight from water by splitting water, and its combustion leads to no harmful side effects. It just again you add oxygen and you get water back out um, which is why it's renewable in that sense um, but the obvious side effect is hydrogen is very explosive so we need to find a way to store it safely so that we can don't run into that that um, explosiveness kind of nature of it but yeah. um, people that I work with in my group do a lot of work on on cancer treatments using metal organic frameworks as drug delivery systems and um, so I do have a bit of kind of knowledge as a result of being in the vicinity of the research but I don't do it personally. Okay that's cool so a little bit more about you uh how have you found research life in general? Interesting it's it's different to anything else any of my friends are doing um who, who aren't doing PhDs it's it's challenging which I guess is a good thing it's always a good thing to be challenged it has its ups and downs if we're going to be honest about it it can be really tough at points I'm very fortunate I've got a fantastic supervisor, a great relationship with, and that, that does genuinely make all the difference. And, and you know, as we know, it's, it's a well-known fact that postgraduate students really suffer with their mental health, perhaps. I yeah, think Nature reported recently, or in their last kind of postgraduate survey, that it's six times higher in postgraduate research students than it is in non-postgraduate research students. And so, you know, but all definitely, I can speak, I can certainly speak for myself, um, that we've definitely felt the effects of that. But I do enjoy it. It is, it is good fun. It's challenging. It's, it's very individual. And so you have to motivate yourself to go and do it, which can sometimes also be challenging. But on the whole, it's been a really incredible experience. I'm kind of coming towards the end of my time as a, a PhD student, minus you know lockdown. I'll hopefully be finished in uh, March time would be the kind of ideal. So it's been it's been good it's been challenging um you've you learned a lot um 
quite quick. Actually, you, you find yourself learning quite a lot in your first year. But it's it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity for for anybody thinking to do it. Don't be put off by by perhaps what I've just said. Um, <laughs> you know, challenge yourself um, and 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 really give it a go because it's a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, you talk about motivation. So, what is it that motivates you in the world of research? It's the it's the opportunity to learn new things. It's the opportunity to kind of you know better myself the motivation really kind of lies in the knowledge that you're trying to do something new that somebody's not done before there, there's something quite nice about that, that you're you're really trying to strive and, and push forwards and boundaries that you know that people haven't really tried to push before perhaps you know it's perhaps not the the big steps that you hear of in the news it can be very repetitive and very kind of small steps forward but you're part of a team as well in research well whilst it's individual as a PhD student you're part of a bigger team that is is striving to really kind of make a difference in their field whatever that field may be and that, that's a really kind of motivating factor knowing that you're trying to push forward. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So what do you feel is the biggest issue stroke challenge in scientific research right now? It seems to vary at at different stages obviously science twitter is a very loud place which is yeah. good it, it really it really highlights the issues for phd students i think certainly right at the moment it's obviously COVID, it's coronavirus if you're mm. lab based there's no way we can get into the lab there's there's no data that we can generate to do our own work um at the moment more generally i think it does vary i think in the general sense in scientific research we need to diversity is a massive topic at the moment everywhere and rightly so most recent survey i can remember seeing is that there's it's either six or nine percent of chemistry professors in the uk are female wow oh my god it is it is it's a low low number and it's interesting because I think certainly at Glasgow, the last time I remember hearing 55% of undergraduates are women mm. and 45, 50% of PhD students are women. And then you get to postdocs and that's really where the number kind of starts to plummet. Yeah. So there's clearly an issue that exists between PhD and postdoc that perhaps, you know, women aren't being supported the best way they can in making that transition over. Um but diversity is a big issue. We know that diversity brings creativity, productivity, yeah. and scientific research is everywhere else. I don't know what the numbers are for, for BAME students as well either. I, I, I honestly can tell you, which I probably should should know. But I, I can't imagine it's, you know, a great deal better. There Obviously, there's a lot on Twitter at the moment. And it's something like, four. I think, 4% of chemistry postgraduates in the US were... were uh, were minorities, were, were, were black, Asian, or were BAME, essentially, in mm. the US, which is also another disgracefully low number, considering in the US that 12.6% of the population is made up by black yeah. um, men and women. So I think probably well, that is probably one of the biggest things that's hampering research at the moment is this discussion around diversity and the need to bring more in. We, we need to bring more in. I don't know if you saw about the the article in Angavanta Chemistry, the, the German Chemical Society by Professor Hudlicky, mm-hmm. um, which has been an absolute shambles. If you want to see one of the issues in chemistry at the moment, I would have a look at that essay that he wrote, which is rather disgraceful as well. I think the, the crux of it comes to, by having more women and minorities, it hampers the progression of the male scientists, is basically what it says in a, in a nutshell. 
it is an absolute disgrace by SA. It is disgusting. That that probably is one of the biggest things that's hampering us at the moment. That whilst I can speak for chemistry and my very, very limited knowledge in the scientific research community. Um, but from, from my standpoint, that's one of the major things um, that's limiting it. And probably also the mental health of postgraduate researchers would be the other one. Because as we know, it's a massive issue because, you know, our friends will graduate at the same time as us undergraduate and they'll go to work in companies that, you know, have got all this infrastructure in place to deal with the the complexities that come with transitioning out of university into into industry or into to business. And funnily enough, their diversity numbers are certainly a lot better than chemistry's diversity numbers. So they're obviously doing something right that the scientific community perhaps is not. But what that is, I'm not in a position to to try and provide answers as a result to that i think if we could have I think certainly on the mental health side of things i think if we could have more mental health support you know the universities do offer it but they're flooded yeah you know universities you know, glasgow university they've got twenty eight thousand students and goodness knows what the size of the you know the mental health department or, or whatever the department may be at glasgow is but it's certainly not enough to cope with twenty eight thousand students i think seven or so thousand of those maybe not that many are postgrads suddenly putting that infrastructure in place and an infrastructure to allow women and other minorities um whether they be BAME or LGBT to to yeah. succeed in the in the, the the research community that's a really interesting point because we were talking about this on our last networking event with scientists as to why because universities are now predominantly female which never used to be the case mm-hmm. um but we're talking about when you start to get to the higher levels, the postdocs, people can't get into that. And we've tried to kind of come up with reasons and money seems to be a, a, one of the main issues. People can't get funding. Yeah, I think money's a big part of it. I think the other thing is that academia is not that big. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're in it, it is quite big. Um, you know, there's a lot going on, but, you know, the fighting that goes on for funding, there is limited funding. Yeah. And so, you know, it's very, very competitive. And once you get past PhD, because it costs so much more to have a postdoc. Yeah. You know, the P, you know, there's a PhD stipend in the UK that is about half to a third of what, you know, your starting postdoc salary is. So, you know, instantly you've got three times more to pay per annum for their salary than you do a PhD student. So there, there's that element as well. But also that's kind of stemmed from the fact that there's limited academic jobs past that. It's kind of a, a tumbling effect. It's a mm. cascade because, you know, it's something like there's 4% of the PhD students, excuse me, the first percent of PhD students go on to have an academic career because that's what there's positions for. And there's, I mean, there's a hundred plus PhD students at Glasgow just now, I think four of them according to that statistic, will go on to have academic careers. Mm-hmm. You think about it like that, that's mad because, you know, obviously you get to know them and they're all very bright, very intelligent, very capable people. But only 4% of those are going to get academic jobs. So the lack of funding available is an issue for, for sure. That's kind of the devil in the detail, really, isn't it? That's the the, the evil of it is that there is not enough funding to do that so people go into industry um you know it's a difficult decision to make because you know there are some people that absolutely love research they absolutely yeah. love what they're doing and and rightly so you should do but there's just not the money there to necessarily take people through and i think come out of 
lockdown in my coronavirus is going to be worse because more people are going to be thinking, oh, well, people aren't hiring, so we'll just do a postdoc. But the same number of positions, if not less positions, are going to exist, but there's going to be more people going for them. Um, so I think we're in a real, we could end up seeing the scientific community in a real kind of vicious cycle of mm. less positions, more postdocs. Yeah, absolutely. And so us as PhD students are going to need to adapt to realise that we might not be able to to do that, certainly in the first instance straight out of a PhD. We might have to go into industry, if we, if we really want a career in academia, we're going to have to go out and come back in, which is not necessarily a bad thing at all. I'm not condemning that. I think that's probably actually a very good thing to get some experience that's not in academia to then go back in to really know that you want to do it. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, so particularly pertaining to your area of expertise and your research, <coughs> what do you think the biggest issue is with your research specifically? I think certainly for metal organic frameworks, what I've learned is that so much of it is still unknown. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of work, you know, the, the first one was only published in kind of 95 Mm -hmm. um, 1995 and that's 25 years um, and there are fields that have existed for much much longer that are still not necessarily industrially relevant mm -hmm. I think you know there needs to be a lot more work done on making the materials and, and understanding their properties and understanding what goes on in, in the conditions that they're used in so you know especially for the certainly for the drug delivery stuff we need to really know what's going on inside cells and, and things like that because we obviously want material to break down to release the drug but then we don't want our material to be toxic as a result and then obtain more damage than it's designed you know to help but there's a, there's a lot of unknowns in terms of the actual understanding the synthesis of materials and mm -hmm. um, which is what i've i've worked a lot on because they don't necessarily behave how we would expect them to behave in, in synthetic conditions and um, you know we can find one way to make one material that we think should if we were to alter it slightly, it should still make the same material, but with a different pore size, so it was bigger. But that doesn't work. It makes something entirely different that we weren't expecting, and so we need to figure out what's going on there. One of the other big issues, and this is what a lot of people are working on at the moment, actually, in terms of the synthesis of these materials, is that they use quite harmful solvents to make them, yeah. um, which we want to obviously avoid if we're looking towards green applications. We want to be able to make them green, to use them green. But at the moment, we use a lot of um, solvent called dimethylformamide, which is is not a particularly pleasant solvent to use, but it works really well in making them, we've found. Yeah. And, and that solvent's been well used in this field for, for 20 plus years. Um, but the problem is, you know, we have to dispose of it which is not particularly easy because it's a very high boiling point and it's quite toxic. It's carcinogenic. Um, the problem also is that, you know, we tend to find a lot of DMS in the material, in the structure of the material, whether it be an integral part of the structure or in, uh, in the pores of the material. So you have to wash that out. And that sometimes involves using methanol or acetone, which are also not necessarily the, the cleanest solvents. Um, they're a bit nicer than DMF, but they're still not ideal. Um, so I think that's really one of the big challenges going forward is the, you know, finding ways to make them green as well as yeah. having them used for green applications. Okay, brilliant. Um, so do you think STEM is, I think we've discussed this a little bit before with the poor rates of women and minorities in, yeah. in science. Do you think STEM is an easy or inclusive environment to enter? I mean, I can't, I can't really speak, obviously, for, for women and minorities. I'm, yeah. I'm neither of those. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, I've been very fortunate 
um, to, to go into a group through you know my undergraduate into my PhD. I would say yes, but that's only because I've experienced it is yes, but I'm also white and, and male. It seems as though the Royal Society of Chemistry are putting together documents to try and understand and, and better increase inclusivity in, in chemistry. You know, there are some fantastic people uh, working on it. Um, certainly for the LGBT community, there's Professor David Smith at York, actually, who who works very hard um, to increase um, LGBT plus um, voices in STEM. And, you know, every university, there's the Athena Swan Award as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you know about that, that aims to uh, increase uh, women and minorities in the in. I think that's more university-wide. I don't think that's STEM-specific as such. Um, but th- there are certainly schemes in place that um, are, are working to do that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Glasgow, at the PhD level, we're, we've got a good split of, of men to women. That's really great. So what do you think are the hardest challenges for PhD students? That can be very kind of situation-dependent. Um, as you know, I mean, we've talked about mental health a lot. That's kind of an overarching theme um relationship with supervisor can be a massive one and that can contribute to the mental health issue yeah um as i said before i'm very fortunate i've got a supervisor who i get on really well with who's very um understanding and very proactive which makes and it does make all the difference um but you know if you've got a supervisor who's not those things it can really dampen your experience of your PhD because it is to be enjoyed and is an enjoy- I've had a really enjoyable PhD experience but if you don't have that it can be really really tough but I think yeah certainly mental health is is a big one and your relationship with your supervisor and um, if you're looking for a PhD I would certainly make sure you you get to your supervisor a little bit um, and speak to past and previous members of the group to to really understand what it's like to work in that group that's brilliant advice so we talk about mental health why do you think the challenges for mental health are so bad for phd students because about 50 percent of phd students end up dropping out that's due to various factors but mental Mm -hmm. health is a big factor that contributes to that so why do you think mental health is so bad for phd students i think the demands of a phd are are quite high i don't think i remember saying to this was more around kind of finishing my my undergraduate degree. I remember saying to my mom, I didn't realize how much chemistry there really is. Mm. And that's only kind of exacerbated when you get to your, your PhD in some way, whilst you end up focusing on a very specific topic. Um, you know, there's so much work to be done. I think nobody can really explain to you how, how much there is to do. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I can say to you that, it's really independent. It's really hardworking, but you're never going to grasp that until you do it yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think it can be a bit of a a shock to the system once you get into it, realizing how how kind of demanding it can be. And I think people get really taken aback by that. I certainly did in the first instant. And fifty percent of people drop out. I reckon a hundred percent consider it. Yeah. Um, or another so i think if you can get over that but also realize that you know your phd is not your life it is a job it is work you know there is life outside the lab or outside the office um, or outside your research full stop 
because you can get your you can find yourself very kind of engrossed in it yeah and then you hit a roadblock and you realize that things aren't all roses but i think uh, yeah a big part of the mental health issue is the, the demand of the phd which is why having such a good supervisor makes such a difference because they should be telling you that this is not your life you should be looking outside have outside interests have yeah. um you know have a social life um, yeah. if that involves people in the lab that's absolutely grand it should do you should be you know they're not just your colleagues they're your friends as well because there's not many people that can sympathize with you if they're not doing a phd themselves they don't understand the the demands um but I, I, yeah i think a big struggle is the, is the demand of it sometimes especially if you're especially if you expect to meet that demand beyond what it's worth. So penultimate question, uh, what do you think can be done to enable more people to have an interest in science? I think a lot like football, grassroots is, is really the way to deal with it, getting into schools, doing demonstrations, engaging with, with primary school students, high school students, kind of the, the younger, the better. So if we can get in and, you know, I remember having a science experiment come to school and it was something as simple as something blew up. Yes, and I, yes. thought this, I thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread when something blew up and I was like, I want to do that. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of good work going into that. You know, we, there's science centres up and down the country. Um, there's, there's STEM projects in schools up and down the country. Um, Glasgow's got a chemistry outreach group, which I shamefully have to admit I'm not part of. Um, which which go into schools and they also go to remote communities as well so the islands in scotland they've, they've been to to go and encourage students from there to get into stem but also as we've talked about making it more accessible for for everyone and um, however that may be again i'm not in a position to to really comment on that because i'm not a woman i'm not a person of color yeah. i'm not lgbt it's you know i can't really comment on that but there's some fantastic work going into making sure that it is accessible for people in those groups um, to to come into the sciences, which you know we need realistically. As I said at the start, there's only six or nine percent of chemistry professors in the UK are female. Mm. I dread to think which of those are people of colour or LGBT. Um, but you know, I guarantee you it's less than that. So yeah, again, not able to really comment on that side of it because I've never experienced that bias. Um, but getting that done as well, we need that for sure. Okay, that's brilliant. Final question. Uh, what golden piece of advice would you give to people thinking of entering the world of science and research? I mean, it's a wonderful opportunity. It's a fantastic opportunity to do some great work and to really kind of put your stamp on things. Find, find something to do that you enjoy. Don't do it for the sake of doing it. Don't, you know, if you find yourself wanting to do project X, go and do project X, don't do project Y because it's right in front of you. It might be harder to come by. Um, but I, yeah, <clears throat> make sure you're doing it to enjoy it. Realize that it is not the only thing in your life. Realize that there is a life, your life outside of it as well. Yeah. Okay, that's brilliant. You have been listening to Scientist. Check out our podcast here on Anchor FM and Spotify or follow us on scientist.net stroke podcast every Wednesday. Thank you for listening.